Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. I haven't had the privilege of meeting you. My name is Mark. I have the privilege of leading this team, the Life Changes Eldership team. I have one wife who's not here right now. She's gone out with the kids. I have three kids. Hello, at the back there. She's relocated to the back. Uh, we have three kids, Judah, Ben, and Daniel, who are lots of life, lots of fun. In a church context like this, when we first arrived at Life Changes, Wally, who led the church before we did, had no kids who were under the age of 20, so they were generally well-behaved. I arrived with a five, a couple-week-old and, I don't know, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and to which one of the services, when it got quiet off the announcements, um, Judah decided to tell his mom, I don't want to go to children's misery today, <laughs> and the whole church told him, um, the cheekiness has continued down. Yesterday, Daniel walked in the room at about Top of six in the morning, I said, Mommy, I want sweets. To which I replied, being the responsible parent, somebody's got to do it. I said, No, boy, you can't have sweets. To which he replied, I was asking Mommy, not Daddy. <laughs> He's three. We have a process to go with children and parenting. We all need help with marriage and parenting and all these amazing, amazing things. Um, but a real amazing privilege to be here. We're on a journey in the book of Galatians. And, um, and I know Gabe worked hard around this topic of justification, but it's huge for us. As we journey this book of Galatians, I trust the gospel is exploding in your heart. I trust Jesus is burning more bright. I trust faith and courage are rising up as you realize how unbelievably good the gospel is. And this book is the foundation stone of the, the Protestant Reformation. As Luther caught a hold of this book and it gave him courage. It gave him energy to, to fight for truth, to, to restore truth back into the church. And was the fault line between much of the, the, the previous dispensation who believed actually works played a much bigger part in our process of, of justification in this. Between the, the Protestants said, actually, it's all in Jesus. It's salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. It's all on Jesus. And when we get that, and it grips our hearts, and it settles deep inside, because here's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to bring it up. He wants to be the accusing voice. He wants to make sure that it's never good enough what Jesus has done. we just got to add, it's Jesus plus nothing. That's why we called the series what we did. We want people to get that, to remember that, that my salvation and my justification, which is a big word, and we're going to process a little bit just to remind this morning, because we can't be scared of taking on some of these big words in church. Sometimes churches are scared to use big words like redemption and justification, and what do they mean, so let's dumb it down. No, it's a, it's a good word for us to learn. All of that to say it's a privilege to be here this morning. Are you well? Yes. Wonderful. At the back there? You're right. Wonderful. Hello, Bradley. How are you? Good? It's all Good. So justification, and I love this, um, this de- uh, definition, God's act in removing the guilt and penalty of sin while at the same time declaring a sinner righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. It's huge. First thing we've got to get, it's God's act. He acted. We used to sing that song, um, I Found Jesus, which rocked in the 90s and had a cool riff to it, but it's not a whole lot of good theology when we understand actually God finds us. He searches us out. His grace reaches out to us, and as we respond, we are purely responding to His initiation into our lives, into our hearts, into our stories, and it carries on. It says, declaring, and it's declaring a sinner righteous. Kings declare things. 
Kings can speak and it's done. Kings can de- make a declaration and it's done. This king declares that sinners are made righteous by the fullness of his blood. It's beautiful. And it's only in his work. And then it's this righteous, the condition of being in right relationship with God. So I trust these, this concept grips all because it's at the center of this whole book. Every chapter, it's from the beginning to the end. And Paul is fighting a good fight for the church. Remember, this is a book and a letter. It's, it's not just a book written about a story that happened. It's a letter penned by a father's heart. If you don't read this letter as Paul being a man who has a father's heart for these believers in the province of Galatia, you might miss the fight for the children of God. You might miss the fact that this is not just a man defending what he has taught. That's secondary to him. He is fighting for the purity of the gospel, that which is primary, and he's fighting for, and it's given to us, because here's the reality, as, as Luther said himself, he says, the truth of this gospel is continually in battle, and his understanding, he made the statement, he felt 90% of believers believed what the false, believed what the false teachers were teaching. He says, the other 10% have got to fight really hard to not slip into it. Why? Because on both sides of the thing, where we can fall off, that Gabe has spoken and the perversions that happen are easy for us to slip into. So this book's a little bit harder. It's not like Jonah where there's a whale and there's all sorts of action. It's like a whole movie scene plays out and we can follow the narrative. It's not like that. This book, we've got to do some work. We've got to understand the context. We've got to go and understand who is he speaking to? Why is he so passionate? I, I, I hope you found your way to Galatians 6 chapters and when you read it, you'll see that there is immense passion in this man's heart. When he's penning down, he is passionate about these people. He is passionate for the gospel. And he's not scared to put that out on the book and into the letter. And um, he's saying, actually, it's not just what they want to add to the gospel. His contention is not the what. It's not actually about circumcision. It's not actually about the laws and the Mosaic laws and all the 613 Jewish laws. It's not about, it's the fact that they want to add anything at all. That's the fact, and, um, which is great. I want to say that he's dealing with a, a, an ordering of the gospel as well. I don't know about you, but, um, but when someone gets saved, there's a temptation to help them, to put them on a road. You've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. A whole bunch of things. And Paul is saying the order of transformation as the gospel grips someone's life is very clear. It's first, believe. And, and, and some people, when they believe, they're in the bottom pits of their lives. And some people are on the highest mountains. Had the privilege of watching, if you were there, when we celebrated the Milnerton one-year birthday two weeks ago, as about 20 people stood up in response to the gospel. Now, the reality is I know some of their stories. Some of them right now are in a recovery center, recovering from addictions. And, and, and some of them on the top of their careers, earning lots and lots of money. But at the foot of the cross, everyone's equal. At the foot of the cross, we all need the same thing, the blood of Jesus to wash away my stains. And Paul is saying your first action, and that courage is given to you by the Holy Spirit himself anyway, is to believe. And then what? Then you've got to start doing a whole bunch of stuff. No, no, you believe. And then the grace of God invades, and you begin to walk it out. You are saved. It's done justified, done. And then you walk out a life living to please the Father. 
Why, why are the laws helpful? Why are those, those lights that shine into our lives helpful? Because they allow us and they illuminate roots that we should be walking to please the Father. As that is my greatest design, as the, Jesus came just to show us the Father. But these teachers are preaching. Actually, what you've got to do is, yes, believe. Great, Paul. You nailed it. Then you've just got to try really hard to walk the road. Just try really hard. And if you keep trying really hard, ultimately you receive a measure of justification when you believe. But at the end, when Jesus returns and you've walked that great road and he receives you home, you are fully justified. It's a challenge. You see, the challenge is it's not. And, and here's where we think we, we live in a world where love means tolerance. I don't know if you've noticed that. And, and if you aren't tolerant to everything, you're a bigot. You hate someone. It's like you can't disagree with anyone anymore, especially on Facebook. You just can't. It's the minute you disagree with anyone, what you're saying is, I hate you. Meanwhile, you're not saying that. You can say it nicely. You can say it softly. You can say it quietly and gently. I disagree. What? You hate me. No, I don't hate you. But we live in a world where tolerance is celebrated as love. It's a challenge when it comes to truth. Paul is fighting for that which is primary. He's not charading, masquerading because of the color of the outfits or the look or the feel or the, nothing like that. He's fighting for the essence of the gospel. And in that story, he's fighting for a big thing. And here's the presentation and what he's probably saying. Saying, guys, that little bit you're adding to the gospel doesn't mean it looks like a other denomination, a slightly deviated reality of what you believe. He's saying, it's another gospel. It's another religion. It's radical, eh? Because it's hard to spot sometimes. In my own heart, it's hard to spot. That's why the word has to come like a spotlight onto my life. And I have to eat it and feast. And we've worked really hard to make sure that people have got enough tools to find their own way to the word of God so that God can speak. Thank you for going on this journey with us. And... Um, the Tertullian speaks, he says that this concept of justification and what the Bible presents is just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two errors. And there are these two perversions. And I know Gabe's probably taught you, but the Bible says actually keep putting these into people. Keep getting them so deep down inside. So they aren't something that we, we have to think about. Actually, they are our first response. And there are these perversions where we fall off. And the first one is this. It's kind of like, Mark and, and Paul, that gospel, it's just a little too easy. So what we're going to do is we're just going to add a little bit to it. And the, these teachers are presenting, well, circumcision and, um, and the laws, following the, the mosaic laws, coming under the laws again. We just, if we just add those, just those, full everything you're saying we love, we're just going to add. Because surely it's just too easy that receiving the load of Jesus, boom, saved. No, no, when I sit, because I sat with one of the men who gave their lives on that Sunday morning this week, he is like a completely different man. See, I knew him before. I'd encountered him before. He was grumpy before. He really didn't like me before. <laughs> and he probably got dragged to church on that day. So when I had coffee with him, I was like, let's see. A little bit. <laughs> I, a totally different man. He's encountered the king of kings, a, pr a man who has every reason to be proud about achievement because he has achieved, weeping for 50 minutes because of the love of God. Do I say to him now, well, just hold on, 
Just hang your horses. It's not all done now. You haven't been to a prayer meeting. You haven't even been to a home group. You decided to take your wife on a date instead of going to life group. What are you thinking? No. Thank you, Jesus, that he is completely new. Thank you that your gospel is that good. And there's a second perversion that says this. Well, that's brilliant. It's all in Jesus. He's done it all. What I'm going to do, I'm just going to carry on because I got my fire insurance from hell. And I'm going to waltz into heaven one day, show my past, and I'm in. So it has no effect on how I live and how. Not at all. We worship a holy God who is jealous for his people and who is calling us to live lives that please him. Ephesians encourages me and pulls me into a life where I'm living to please him. It's what I live. That's why we make our decisions. That's why we surrender like Jesus did to his will. Because it pleases him. Romans 1 verse 16. The gospel is the power of God. So there is no way to bring the power of God to bear on a problem except by bringing the gospel. The gospel was not, oh, that guy needed the gospel for the altar call. That's the gospel. No. Too many Christians leave the gospel at the salvation door. The gospel is my everyday reality. Every day I wake up. Every day I need his grace. Every day I need his word to wash over me. Every day the gospel bears over our lives. And, and the challenges, the challenges we're coming up in this book against some religious reality, religious spirits. And then the challenges, religion, and religious people find God useful. You know that? It's, his principles are helpful. And if I just do this, if I just do this, it'll work out. And actually what's at the center of all of that is me. But people who've encountered the king of kings find God beautiful. Beautiful. Captivating. I want to call people into a relationship with God where they find him beautiful. Not useful. Not just Actually, I can quote 30,000 um, scriptures. Well, that's amazing. Honestly, I think that is amazing. But unless they get into my heart and they bring light and life and lightness to my feet because I'm loved by the king and that gospel story pulls me in, then actually I'm missing it. And um, it's the same with God. I said to the leaders the other night, when God presents himself to man and he reveals him, he doesn't go, well, I'm omnipresent, I'm omniscient, I'm all over the place. And he describes what he is and what he can do. No, he doesn't do that. The first time he encounters man, he doesn't throw a whole bunch of jargon at them and describe himself. He just walks past and this amazing scripture, the compassionate and gracious God, Exodus 34, slow to anger, abounding in love. I've been studying this section of scripture and there's some amazing interpretations here. You know, it's very hard to translate the original Hebrew word for word into because you can't. So what they do is they translate. So slow to anger, the actual translation means long in the nostrils. <laughs> Serious. Long in the nostrils. You translate that to slow to anger. Why? Because when someone's angry, they're like, <laughs> his nostrils, it's flaring, it's all going, there's all sorts of stuff. And, and, but when someone is slow to anger, they take it in. Take a breath, and I've got very small nostrils, so I'm a really bad example. But the nostrils pull themselves in. You get long in the nostrils when you hold it in. 
God is slow to anger. When I describe someone, when I describe my wife to someone, I don't say, well, she's five foot seven, brunette, unbelievably beautiful. That's just true. And um, all these, I don't use those descriptors. I tell them how she's gentle and kind. I tell them how she'll deal with my rubbish gently and kind. I'll tell them how she's long-suffering and patient. Because then they will understand who she is, not what she's about. And I want to do that with God, with people for God. So I want to jump ahead a little bit into this book. And I'm not going to re-preach everything Gabe's preached. I wanted to just give that as a premise in case you missed last week. But I, but I think, I, here's the truth that we've got to look. There are many lenses when you read the word. One of them is how they do it. So we get the what, justification. He's fighting for that. that we get that. How does he do it? Because I think it's important for us to also see that in the light of how we are called to engage culture and engage other believers. This book, this letter was written to the church to sort us out. This is this sorting us out. This is not any, we love some of those scriptures that took and we kind of throw love bombs at the world. We love that. Sometimes, I hope not. But, um, but then he carries on. And here's the thing. He goes on a road trip. With his mates. And he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, and I'm sorry they would have been on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to Galatians chapter 2, that'll be awesome. And I just want to work through the scripture a little bit today and, and bring some light. And I, tried, I, I trust life to the words as, as we power into the words. It says this Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along too. When we do life and the gospel, do it with friends. Let's go on road trips with friends. Let's get in cars and do things. And he goes to this story. He hasn't been summoned. He feels he's got a a message he wants to bring before the other leaders, but he doesn't go alone. I look at that line. I'm saying, here's the challenge. Am I going alone? And then he look at who he takes. He takes Titus and he takes Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is easy to understand why he would take him. He's He's from the same background. He would have the same cultures. Even some of the ways he would do things would not offend the people in Jerusalem. He's easy to understand. But why take Titus? Because who is Titus? And I heard this description that I liked him. He is a full-on bacon-eating Greek, uncircumcised, pork sandwich-loving, non-lover of Jesus. He's a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. And why? Why should the church fight to make sure that in their midst and in their relationships and in our lives, there are Tartuses who are different to us from different church backgrounds because they keep us from getting conceited. They remind us that there is grace evidence and they bring life and mess and joy to our story. We all need a Titus in our lives. We all need to go on a journey with the Titus. Churches need to make sure that we have full-on bacon-eating Greek uncircumcised, pork-loving. You know what that looks like now? Smoking? Tattooed up to the hilt? Some of you are like, oh. No. I'm serious. Because if they're not here, we can easily slip into, well, we've got it. And it's about our traditions and our ways. No, it's not. It's got nothing to do with that. And he speaks. And, and here's the thing. He says, he, he says, he continues in his story. He says, I went in a response to Revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Imagine all the dudes running from Durban to Peter Marisburg today. They arrive there, big sign, 
sorry, next week. How would that go down? Sorry, well done for getting here. Thank you for not cheating. We're going to run it again next week. See you then. I don't think that would go. They ran a race in vain. It's like the, the prop who gets the breakaway and he's running. He's like all 130 kgs of him. And because he's working so hard to run the whole length of the field, he didn't hear the ref. And everyone else is stopping, but you watch him run the whole field. And he does the big swallow dive. He gets up and does the dance when he celebrates. And no one's there. He ran that whole distance in vain. Now he takes about seven minutes to get back to the other side of the field. <laughs> Paul's saying, I don't want to do that. He says, here's the reality. I had a revelation. Now, I've been in ministry for quite a while. Every time someone comes to a coffee and says, I've had a revelation, unfortunately, because of experience, I get a bit nervous, if I'm being honest, because it follows with these words, God has said, and then there's an inference, well, what do you think about it? When God has said, what does it matter what I think about it? Paul's saying, I've had a revelation. I've seen Jesus on the Damascus road. I got fronted with the king of kings. I walked for 14 years, and I don't want to run my race in vain. So what, does I need, what do I need to do? I'm going to walk it out with my brothers. Your brothers and your sisters are those who can irritate you the most. They are those who offend you the most. They're also those who will make sure you don't run your race in vain. It does, he's not surrendering the revelation to them. At all. He's holding on to the, the revelation of Jesus that he's got, but he walks it out in humility with his brothers. He presents it to them, and he says it, meeting privately. We've got to be challenged by that. I watched three leaders once. In 2008, there was a challenge in Durban where a guy who'd previously had quite a loud voice in Durban, a preacher, came and was preaching something that was off. It was wrong. And I went with one of these men and I sat in a conference where, honestly, it was, it was terrible. And I watched him sit there, a big man who had lots of influence, sit there humbly for three days and just listen. And after the conference, he phoned this gentleman up and said, I love you, and because I love you, I have to speak to you. So what I've done is I've booked time away for three days, and we are going away. And then the guy says, no, no, no. No, I've paid for it, and I'm taking you away with two other brothers. And they boxed for three days. But here's the reality. You only know because I told you. No one put it on Facebook. No one shouts about it from a pulpit. He says, I met with them privately. There are ways of engaging and fighting for truth. And how we do it sometimes is just as important as what we are fighting for. We have to realize. He says, I met with, later on in the scripture, he speaks about, he says, I met with Cephas face to face. He had a challenge with Peter face to face, and the Bible is honest enough to put it in the Word, which means we have to learn something from it. We get so embarrassed in church, oh, I've got to have this tough conversation. No, we are brothers and sisters, which means on the other side of the conversation, because of God and our fellowship in Jesus, we're still going to be brothers and sisters, but we have to be able to get through the difficulty of it face to face, in private sometimes. And then he carries on. And um, he says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Imagine the relief of that guy. <laughs> I mean, come on. And you can understand the Jewish guys who'd gone, and they'd gone through this whole ritual because God had said that their people must be. And now they're going, he gets it. He didn't have it. That's not fair. It's not fair. No, it's not fair. On the cross, 
One on either side. God gives his life on the cross. Saved. If you don't believe that, then I'm telling you, we don't believe the same gospel. I've sat with people on their deathbeds who, who've denounced, who've shouted against. I've sat with them as the reality is, the, as you know the common saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. When people are dying and confronted with eternity, they have choices to make. I want to be there. I want to see the gospel come alive in their dying eyes. Because I believe in a God who's that good. And it carries on. It says, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. A couple of things. And I'm just doing this line by line because I find so much life in the scriptures for you and for myself. He says, here's the reality. Religious people hate the freedom that the believers should be walking in. It's in the church. It's in the church. The religious, those, says, will we'll spy on the freedom. We have to fight for freedom. The climax of this book for me, and it'll be different for people, is Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's the climax. That's where we're going. How we get there is important. Saying, actually, guys, fight for this, because people are wanting to take this away from you. And he carries on, and, and he says this amazing statement, we did not give in to them for a moment. What do I love about that statement? We. We. Met with the brothers, submitted himself in humility, even though he didn't have to. From I, it becomes we. Didn't give in to them for a moment. We give too much time to secondary things, guys. Spend energy fighting on crazy things. There's worthy fights, the essence of the gospel, and there's fights that aren't worth it. Make sure you are spending your freedom and your time wisely. And he carries on, and he starts speaking about the law and grace. And I know Gabe has expounded some of this, but I want to tell you that, that, I, that God is, is still judge. But when I look at the New Testament, the greatest revelation of, of, the Father, of God is the Father. Maybe I'm affected by listening to a man like Rory preach for 15 years, maybe. And the law has every right to reveal to me the commands that God would lay upon me to live out a life in this world that is good for me and brings glory to God. But here's the challenge of the law. And um, did, did Gabe use the example of the MRI machine at all, diagnostic, when he taught you last week? Candace had to go for an MRI recently. And you lie in a machine, it's like noisy and loud and expensive and all that things. And it can show you everything that's going on in there. Everything. That's the law. It can show us everything. The law always reveals my brokenness. You know that when you get that SMS. Actually, you're a really holy bunch. I got one. Your fine is outstanding. The law is shouting. It's not wrong. He's right. The MRI machine says, actually, there's an issue here. But what can it do to fix the issue? Absolutely nothing. You can go for 25 MRIs. You can meet every law. The law cannot fix my brokenness. The law highlights it, reveals us, and beyond my receiving salvation, the law continues to reveal my brokenness so that the Spirit of God can get in. And the only cure and the only one who can heal me is Jesus. 
His love, His grace, His blood, His power, it's all in Jesus. So it's not like we throw the law out. No one's doing that. But Jesus came to fulfill the law and give us the ability to be healed and walk in a life that is empowered by the grace of God. I really do believe the grace of God is unbelievably powerful. And Jesus is the cure that we need. There's many diagnostics that can bring and shine on my life. I know that. And I'll fail many of them, I'm sure. But I need Jesus. And I want to jump ahead to a lot, the last verse, if that's all right, and finish up with what really is the climax for me of this amazing chapter, verse 19, if you're there. And he says this, he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I want to live. I love that song. Who wrote it? Who? I, I did it all. Do you know that song? Help me. Thank you. Help me, man. They came to Cape Town. We went to go watch them. We boogied all night. One Republic. It's, this, it's the song. It's called I Lived. It's about this young guy with cystic fibrosis and, a, and, a, and a, his whole life should end at 30. And the song is about I Lived. I want to live life. I want to live. Uh, when I say I live in the light of alert eternity, it's not the case. I want to make it to a long age and live. I want to live life. And if I get 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, or no more years, I want to know that I lived a life full of courage and gave glory to God in that story. And when I encounter him in heaven, his life that breathed life into me, not my ability to do this. Here's what Paul is fighting. He's fighting our self-sufficiency, our self-idolatry. He's fighting that stuff. He's saying, come on, guys, it's not about you. It's never been about you and your ability to do this. Come on, church. The thing that will save the world is not your ability to pull yourself through. It's your ability to throw yourself into him and his sufficiency and his perfection. I love Jesus and I want to find life in Jesus. And when I stop living life and I stop breathing in his life, I've got to get back to a place of worship of the king. This thing's going to poke my eye out any second. Let me pull it down there. Is that all right? It's all good. So I'm jumping around a little bit, but I love the scripture. It says, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What is he saying? He's saying when you add to the gospel and it's Jesus plus something, Jesus died for nothing. It's hard for us, eh? I don't know about you, but I sit with people and they say this classic line, it's too good to be true. Yeah, it is. That's exactly what it is. But Mark, you don't know what I've done. I've got a pretty good idea. I've sat in some interesting meetings where people have confessed to myself and my wife that they had planned their husband's murder in their head and the husband's sitting in the room going, this is very awkward for all of us <laughs> right now. And the only way you can navigate through that is Jesus. There's no pastoral help tool that helps that. You just can't. It's just very awkward and run to Jesus. Jesus is the one who made the way who paid the way, and he clears the way for us to walk with him. He is the way. 
I love that line. And three implications I want to give you this morning of that amazing scripture. Is that all right? Your, maybe you don't know where I've been this morning. All I'm really trying to do is stir you to love Jesus and search him out in the word. That's what I want to do. I don't want to give you all the answers. But there's three implications to this last line of scripture that are huge for us. The first one is this. I have been crucified with Christ. Point number one. We must die. Yay! been crucified with Christ. So I don't physically die and the blood doesn't drain from my body. No, he's not saying that. He's saying everything that's about me, for me, serving me, where I'm self-sufficient and self-obsessed. He says that part has to die. And what rises up is like Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. My job and my journey in this life is to become like Jesus. That's the journey. Not tick off, went to church 43 times this year, went to life group a whole lot of times, gave away this much. Did all those things are good for you. They're good for you. But God doesn't have a lens and he's ticking that off. He says, oh, I love you because of all that stuff. Now, God loves you because when he looks at you, he sees Jesus crucified. He sees the act on the cross that satisfied his wrath that is real. But it's satisfied. The implication of the scripture, Romans 6 verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Do I sin? Yeah. But I'm not a slave to sin. And I walk in relation with God, and as his light shines, I trust I sin less and less. See, I'm not always slow to anger. My wife is. I wish I was, but I trust and I hope if you asked her, the testing me would be, maybe I'm a little bit slower than the 25-year-old she married, the 28-year-old who flipped his lid because he didn't know what was going on, the 33-year-old, now the 38-year-old. I, I trust the testing me would be is more of Jesus. Then he says this, and the second implication, it is no longer I who live. You want to live in the freedom that he's talking about? Be willing to surrender all to Jesus. What does that mean? Mark, my, my dreams, my desires, my passions, yes. Why? Because he's a good father who even though fathers on this earth can give good gifts, surrender to the good father and allow him to blow your mind with his goodness. You can trust him. You can trust him. The most misunderstood in the bar, scripture in the Bible for me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I used to think hallowed mean, go God, you good thing, hello you. I, I thought that's what it means. I thought like, hello you. Like I hello you. I don't know what I meant. That word hello is the same root word that was used for when Moses was in the desert. And God said, speak to the rock. And Moses, out of anger, smacked the rock twice. And shouted at God's people. God said, you will not enter the promised land because you did not hallow me. To hallow God is to trust him with everything. Especially your future. Especially the inheritance he has for you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Surrender to him. And last one that we'll keep pounding in as we go through the series is we are justified by faith alone. Paul explains, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God. 
I'm in Jesus. One of the positions Ephesians speaks about is being in Christ. It's in Christ. It's the language that's used all the time. I'm in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all about Jesus. And I want to finish up where Paul finishes up. He writes this amazing, and to Timothy, he's writing to a spiritual son, Timothy. He writes this, he says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. Not the wrong fight. Not every fight. I fought the good fight for the purity and the essence of the gospel so that people can come into freedom. He says, I have finished the race. Not run the race in vain. This is years down the line. He says, I've finished the race. I want to finish the race. I'm a young man. I'm 38 years old. I've seen people in my peers who when we were 21, 22, we didn't struggle to live for Jesus. We didn't struggle to surrender all. But the minute stuff came into our lives and opportunities and possibilities that he gave us, I've seen hearts not finish the race. It's probably the greatest sadness for me. He says, I've kept the faith. Without this, we have nothing. It's faith. This thing we're doing in church and, and why we do it, it's faith in Jesus and his ability to wash us just because of that. I'd love to pray for us this morning, if that's all right, Breda, if that's cool. And I think every time we preach the gospel, there there are different people in the room, but this book says there's specifically two kinds of people. The first one is this, is that we work, some are working incredibly hard to receive God's favor. Unsure of his love, his affection, and his care for him, we continue to do those little bit extra. It looks like this. If you don't repost this post, just being honest, just I'm being honest, guys. It's like God will not. No, no, not my God. That's not my Jesus. My Jesus doesn't care about your post or you get to a robot and you've got five rand, you know you've got five rand and, and you're like, I must give it away because if I don't, then I'm not. No, no, no. You want to because you love him and from that place you are able to. It's so subtle, guys. Tell you what it looks for like a preacher. You wake up at four o'clock on a Sunday morning because you felt you had to get up a little earlier because you didn't have too many good quiet times this week because your kids were sick. So you think, I've got to get up a little bit earlier to pray a little harder so that God is with me. Rubbish. God is with me because I'm his son, not because I'm a preacher. Because he loves me and he's already paid the highest price for me. Not because of anything I've done. And everything I do do is because I love him. And I want to give him my every breath. So I want to pray for those folks. Because this gospel says we're here. And we're all this at some stage. And on the other side, there are functional atheists. Which looks a little bit like this. I've got my fire insurance from hell. I pop into church every now and again. I do some relational stuff. I read the Bible every now and again. But I'm pretty much unaware of who God is. And when you read that Exodus 34 about God is gracious and compassionate, that's not God. So I'm not in relationship with him. 
Paul is fighting for our relationship with God. And he's saying, let's get the other stuff out the way so we can get to the main stuff. And his life can fill me from deep inside. Because then we're alive. Then the church is the most attractive people on the earth. Our lives, our marriages, our children are just attractive to people. You can't stop it when we allow the grace of God to flood us. Can we stand all together if that's all right? And I'm not going to ask you to respond which one. I, I think the reality is, I can speak for myself, I'm possibly both sometimes. But how I rectify that is I come back to the Word of God. Because you know what the Bible says? It says we are believers. The implication of that is what we believe is very important. It's just, we, we don't just go along with church because they're preaching something. No, no, you've got to believe it and you've got to make sure it's the word of God. Yourself. Jesus, be exalted in this place, I pray. Thank you for your word. I, I pray this morning, freedom in this place, God. Lord, I'll never forget the image of sitting with that man and the life in his eyes. It's like a man who was dead is now alive because he's encountered the King of Kings. Not because he put his hand up, not because he went to church, not because he's done a single thing, but because he's encountered the love of God. I pray this morning. That for those who, there's a little bit Jesus plus a little bit. Just a naught point naught 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 one percent. If I just got to work that little bit harder. It's not about putting down the plow and not harvesting the field you've called us to harvest. Not that. We do that because we love you. It's the, it's the little things that we want to do just in case you might not. I pray, Spirit of God, in this place, would you sit, bring freedom. Would you break the shekels? And the lies in our thinking right now. Would you break the lies, Lord? And Lord, we don't want to be functional atheists, knowing much about God, but not walking in relationship with you, God. Not in relationship with the church. Not in relationship, but in relationship with you. And I pray now, Spirit of God, who reveals the Father, the Son, I pray, Holy Father, who is a self-revealing God, you're not hiding from your people. Pray, would you reveal yourself to us even more? If, while eyes are closed, if that's you, and you know that there are some gates that are lifting, it might be thoughts, it might be past church experience, it might be past pains, it might be unforgiveness. If that's you, will you place your hand on your heart right now I just pray right now, God, let the chains come off. That we would hear the shackles falling and we would hear the shouts of joy as your love is revealed. We want to walk with you, Jesus. We want to walk with you. That's what you called us into. That's why you set us free. That's why you paid the price. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your love. Thank you, King.